There's always a lot happening in the world, and also in our, in our own lives, for many people, back to school or back to work from, from holidays. And uh, as I was seeing that picture, that is one picture I contributed from the Horseshoe Bend outside of, uh, of the Grand Canyon. And it uh, reminded me, sometimes the God's greatness, we see it in creation, right? And it just, you stand there in the grandeur of that and you just have a whole new appreciation for the greatness of God. And sometimes it's in an answer to prayer or someone shares a story of how God has been at work in their life and you go, wow, God, you're amazing. You are so creative in how you're able to bring people back to you or, uh, or how you answer to prayer. And so we want to take time to, to thank God as we also intercede for one another. Let's pray. Oh God, you are amazing. And Lord, there are times it's like looking over the flat landscape and we don't realize there is greatness around the next corner. And when we catch a glimpse of your greatness, whether it be in your creation or a story that is shared or an answer to prayer, Lord, it reminds us you are an amazing God. And we thank you that that is the kind of God you are, who is unstoppable, unchangeable. Lord, you do not erode away even as so much in the world does. Lord, you are the God who continues with your grandeur. And yet, God, you are always doing new things. You're always finding new ways to, to bring people back to yourself, to point them and lead them into the way that leads to life. And we thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus, your Son, Lord, to come not merely to point the way, but to be the way, though it cost him his life. Lord, to make a way back to you when we had turned in rebellion against you and said, we can do it our own way. And Lord, we continue, the world continues to try to do it its own way. And time and again, we need you to do a new thing to remind us that Life lived with ourselves at the center is just a dead end. But a life lived with you at the center is indeed abundant. Lord, um, we thank you for, for, for schools, for teachers, for educators, for the opportunities that you give, not only to learn, but Lord, in the connections and relationships that happen as we work and learn and serve together. Lord, this week I'm especially grateful for, uh, for plumbers and those who work, Lord, in helping us in some of the practical crisis that happen in our lives, and we just take things for granted until a problem arises, and then we realize how interconnected we are and how much we rely on others. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we open it up this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts, Lord, that we would see you in your greatness, that we would experience you, that we would hear you anew speaking to us. Amen. I wonder, uh, what is the most memorable event you've ever lived through? Was it the passing of Queen Elizabeth this week? The only 
I've always sung God Save the Queen, you know, all my life, never God Save the King. So I tried that this week. Uh, Maybe it's been an extreme weather event. Maybe it was the trip of a lifetime. Maybe it was a tragedy. For many people in North America and even around the world, what took place on this day, 21 years ago, 9-11, left a lasting impression. Many of those who were alive when the terrorist attacks happened can't help but remember where they were and what they were thinking and feeling as the planes were grounded and and the skies grew silent. Was this the end? Would life ever return to normal? I can also remember attendance in churches suddenly swelling as people were wondering, where is God during 9-11? When the Israelites were asked to identify the most life-changing event in their national history, there was one they remembered and celebrated and retold more than any other. Israel's time of slavery in Egypt was remembered as the worst of times and their great exodus from it as the best of times and the definitive event in their collective history. As Old Testament professor Tremper Longman points out, the exodus event so imprinted itself on the memory of later Israel that its theme reverberates throughout the Old and the New Testament. Derek Kidner likens it to a a tree that spreads its roots and its branches into virtually every corner of the Bible. Within the Bible, we hear echoes of the Exodus story in the Psalms. The prophets revert to it as an example and even a model as well for a new Exodus. In the New Testament, the Gospels go to great lengths to show us that Jesus' life and work follow the pattern of the events of the Exodus. So Jesus spends how many days in the wilderness? 40, right? Like Israel. Going through temptations, reading the book of Deuteronomy and quoting it. Jesus preaches his message from the Sermon on the Mount, like the Mount where the Ten Commandments were delivered. And when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah in Luke 9, Luke tells us that Jesus spoke on his, about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's the literal word in Greek, is the exodus. The other New Testament writers also make abundant use of the exodus texts and images to proclaim God's saving work through Christ, our Passover lamb, the central thing in the, in the, the central event in the exodus story. And so over the next several months, I want us to explore the lessons God has for us in the book of Exodus. And today we're going to begin with Exodus chapter 1. So I invite you to turn, Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to read that chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. 
But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor as they built Pithom and Ramses as storehouses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during birth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Oh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, with the opening verses, the writer deliberately sets the story he is telling here in the much larger story begun back in Genesis. Israel's presence in Egypt, rather than the promised land that God had promised to Abraham may be surprising, but it is no byproduct of chance. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob will also be with them in surprising ways. Some far more or less subtle than expected and others far more dramatic than ever imagined. Their presence in Egypt was a part of God's larger plan to save not only his people, but ultimately all people. And the Joseph story in Genesis had been a, an example and a sample of this as Joseph himself came to discover. For if one page back in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good in order to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives from that seven-year famine. Well, this is all part of God's larger plan. And God enabled his people not, not merely to survive in Egypt, but actually to thrive. And the report in verse 7 is a sign of God's blessing. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and so, so numerous that the land was filled with them. Yet, after Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, a new king, who did, literally did not know Joseph, 
came to power in Egypt. Now, the, the reference to Joseph is more than a reference to him as a person. It includes his life-giving work in Egypt of providing food for the people through the seven-year famine. Egypt should have built a monument to preserve his memory and his service to the nation. Instead, his life and service are allowed to slip from memory, or actually more likely, the past was deliberately ignored by the new king in Egypt because he wanted to make room for the brand new empire that he was going to build. Like the reminded of the cultural revolution that took place in China, where all of the history was swept aside so that the new regime, brand new, could come in. The new pharaoh did not want history to influence him in any way. And we can see his new perspective that he brings as he describes the, the immigrants, not the immigrant contribution, but the immigrant problem. What the narrator had saw as a blessing, the new pharaoh sees as a curse. There is no longer any we in the narrative. Notice how in verse 9 he has shifted to us and them language. Those immigrants are not only un-Egyptian, they are anti-Egyptian. Oppression. Oppression becomes the dominant theme in the calculated moves that Pharaoh will take against them. He wastes no time in, in initiating a dramatic change in national public policy. He teaches his people to fear the Israelites as a matter of national security, leveraging that fear to implement a brutal state system of oppression. Taskmasters are put over them, right, to oppress them with forced labor, a practice all too well known in Egypt. I was reading some of the accounts from that time period uh, and uh, close to that time period, and it is just brutal. Historically, not only then, but throughout history, such cruelties often result, don't they, in many, many deaths. And yet, Pharaoh's ruthless efforts here prove surprisingly fruitless. The more Israel is oppressed, the more they multiply. And the more they multiply, the more Pharaoh's fears multiply. And there's a tragic irony in this, for as uh, writer Terence Frethheim rightly points out, the reference to Egypt's fears indicates that oppression has a negative effect upon the oppressor as much as the oppressed. Both become less human. Both bear the marks of oppression, albeit in different ways. And under a regime of slavery, subjects become objects, work units. And so when Pharaoh's attempt to control the immigrant problem by enslaving them, when that fails to work, he is drawn to a, to a second, even more draconian measure. That of killing all the Israelite male children at birth. From Pharaoh's point of view, such an approach was logical and necessary for there to be only one people and one heritage in the land of Egypt. In kind of a, a reverse twist, I couldn't help but think in North American history, 
how indigenous people were considered a threat to European settlement and expansion. With increased colonization came the framing of the Indian problem, the prevailing belief that indigenous peoples needed to be eliminated through assimilation and cultural genocide. In 1918, the longtime superintendent of Canada's Department of Indian Affairs, Duncan Campbell Scott, stated the government's goal as follows. He said, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think as a matter of fact that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are, who are not able to stand alone. Our, object, our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. The king of Egypt in his day also enlists the help of a particular government department to implement his policy. The Hebrew midwives. And this could be midwives who are Hebrew, but it could also be Hebrew was a kind of a generic term at that time. It's like those foreigners. And it could be other foreigner midwives who are responsible for the Hebrew or the foreign women. One particular striking detail in the story at this point is that we are given the names of two lowly midwives, Shifra and Puah. And I want you to say those names with me, okay? I know it's, a, it's Hebrew. Shifra, Puah. They should be famous because they are recorded forever for us. And uh, it is particularly interesting that while their names are recorded, can you tell me who the Pharaoh is at this time? Oh my, there have been entire academic conferences trying to figure out. There's some options, but there's several time periods that work equally well, or there's challenges with each of them. But why would they get named and the king of Egypt, of the greatest empire of the time, remain nameless? You know, is this proof that it's unhistorical? I don't think so. There's probably seven re several reasons. One is likely the symbolic nature of Pharaoh's role in the narrative. He is not just a particular oppressor, but he represents all such oppressors. And the ultimate oppressor, Satan himself, who opposes God and God's people throughout history. And second, to not name him thwarts, undermines Pharaoh's goal, which is to make a name for himself. Remember the builders of the Tower of Babel? They wanted to make a name for themselves. It still goes on today, right? And for the one to whom J Joseph's name and legacy meant nothing, isn't it appropriate that his name is forgotten? Pharaoh's name is forgotten? Well, the midwives who feared God are remembered forever. We dare not miss other ironies in this story. For in a narrative where God seems to be painfully absent, you know, where was God during Israel's 9-11? The eye of faith sees his subtle but powerful hand at work. Notice the miraculous multiplication 
of his people in the face of ruthless oppression. Like the growth of the church that has often taken place under persecution. And the most powerful man in the empire, Pharaoh, is subverted and outsmarted by women. Yes, this was a patriarchal age, and he is undermined and defeated by women repeatedly. First the midwives here in this chapter, but then he will be defeated by Moses' mother, by his own daughter, Pharaoh's own daughter, and Moses' sister. And Pharaoh, who had counseled his people, in verse 10, to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. Well, the midwives, they do deal shrewdly with the Israelites, but not against them, but for them. They outsmart Pharaoh, giving him a line. I don't know if he believed it or not, but he was probably too ignorant of the Hebrews, of those foreigners and Egyptian women. Maybe it's true. And ironically, as Peter Enns, commentator Peter Enns points out, the midwives are blessed by the very thing Pharaoh enlisted their help to prevent, population increase. So even these midwives are given families, and they just add to this growing problem that Pharaoh has. But it is all, if we know the Genesis story, a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And Pharaoh's final solution to the immigrant problem is to murder all the Hebrew male infants by throwing them into the Nile River. You need to know that the Nile was seen by the Egyptians as a divine, life-giving force. And yet they chose to misuse and abuse it as an instrument of death for the Israelites. In our day, medical technology and skills designed to save life are used to terminate it through abortion, physician-assisted suicide, all under deceptive banners that mask the horrors of what these are really in God's eyes, murder. The significance of the use and abuse of the life-giving Nile to take innocent life rather than give and sustain life cannot be overstated. You see, there is a very good reason why the first plague with which God will strike Egypt is against the Nile and why he will turn it to blood. With that plague, God will expose what the Egyptians have done. And it is the the massive amount of innocent blood that they have shed in that river and that they think it's just disappeared. God is going to make that all visible. You yourselves have done this to my people. Shed all of this innocent blood. You have made it a river of blood and death. See, the writer does not explicitly either tell us what happened after this genocidal order is given. Things will unfold. We are left to wonder, what will happen if the future is allowed to be shaped by this murderous decree of Pharaoh's final solution? This new king and his new policy are clearly a direct affront, a confrontation against God himself. Trying to survive under such godless tyranny must have birthed many a prayerful lament like the one I read during my devotions this week, Psalm 74. I hadn't thought of it until I was working on this, and then 
Just a, a few excerpts from Psalm 74 begins, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Your foes said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. We are given no signs from God, and none of us knows how long this will be. Rise up, O oh God, defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. And Exodus chapter 1 is, is allowed to end on this ominous note. And yet, and yet, given the failures of Pharaoh's policies to this point, there is reason for hope among those who have been shaped by the stories of Genesis, of long barren women giving birth, of Joseph the slave in Egypt, who in one day suddenly went from being a prisoner in the empire to being in the palace second only to Pharaoh. Surely the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph has not abandoned his people. Surely, surely he has another trick or two up his sleeve. For one can never tell where and through whom his next move will come. But it would be just like this God to do something unexpected and life-changing, wouldn't it? Well, I said there's lessons from this. Well, I think there's at least three lessons. We'll begin with the first. The first lesson, I think, is knowing history matters a lot. And by this, this isn't just mental knowledge of history, but knowledge in Hebrew was always, when you remembered, you acted on the basis of that. It was knowledge that directed your actions. Knowing in a way that shaped how you live. And so the memory of Israel's of Israel's oppression in Egypt will long be remembered. It will indeed be uh, recited in their creeds. But it is done not to draw pity or to lay blame, but in motivation for Israel to care for the oppressed and the foreigner. So Leviticus chapter 19 says, When a foreigner resides among you who is in your land... Do not mistreat them. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In this story, Pharaoh's not knowing, his deliberate disregard of the past leads to oppression. Right? While God's knowing and remembering his past covenant promises leads to salvation. It always does. Knowing history matters a lot. Secondly, God is always active even in the dark. God is always active even in the dark. Where was God during Israel's 9-11? I don't know whether you noticed or not, but the first time that God's name appears in chapter 1 is only at verse 17. Only verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. That's the only time God's name pops up deliberately. I mean, pops up where you can see it, right? God is mentioned as the subject of the sentence only in verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. And yet God 
was continually at work in subtle and shrewd ways. Uh, for example, the, the uh, midwives' work in God's economy is profound, right? Absolutely profound. Little things make a big difference. The people who will help to turn the tide, none of them are the rich and the powerful. It is the lowly. Which brings us to a third lesson. Be willing to stand up for God. Whoever you are and wherever you are. As we read the story, we are confronted with a choice that ordinary people like Shifra and Pua had to face. Appreciate what the commentator Tim Chester says. He says, don't underestimate the pressure they were under or the risks involved in what they did. Why did they act as they did? Because they feared God. They held him in higher awe than the ruler of the superpower of their day. And they so trusted in him to keep his plans that they were prepared to defy those of Pharaoh. And God saw it. And he honored it. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will not lack God's support. I want to invite the uh, worship team to come up. And uh, as they're coming, let us pray together. O oh God of the Exodus, sometimes within our lives, our personal lives, our corporate lives, we wonder where are you when all, all hell seems to be breaking loose, when it doesn't seem like you're doing what you're supposed to, when you seem silent and absent in the dark. And yet, God, you are the one who is unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. We thank you that you are not a God who always makes a big deal of himself, but a God who is always active and at work. And because of who you are, and because of your track record, Lord, we are never without hope. And so, Lord, we thank you for this story, and may you allow it to, to shape our lives, even as we go into this week and in the weeks to come. Amen. Amen. We don't want to stop now, <laughs> do we? It's great to be able to worship and praise our God together. I just want the, uh, those who are small group leaders uh, to come up at this time. I know some of your groups aren't necessarily starting yet, but those who are, you can, the rest of you can be seated. This will just take uh, a few minutes. So there's John. Thank you. Is Shannon here? No. Okay. So Adrian's filling in in the back on the drums. Uh, Catherine, thank you. So I just want you to say uh, who you are, when your group is meeting, and what you're going to be, what your focus is going to be. Okay. Good morning, I'm Catherine Claussen, and I facilitate the ladies' study on Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock. We're going to be meeting here in the sanctuary. Um, we're going to be starting on September 20th. Um, our study, I'm waiting for curriculum. There seems to be a supply chain issue. And uh, so I'm hoping it's going to be 
Finding Your People by Jenny Allen. But if not, I'll be leading something. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, uh, feel free to uh, come, just contact me or uh, come on uh, Tuesday, September 20th. Come on in here and uh, love to have you and uh, we'll study God's Word. Thanks. That's great. Thank you. And uh, Shannon and Adrian are on Monday evenings, 7, seven o'clock, and your address is? 947 Harris Avenue. 947 Harris Avenue. I'll be posting this, uh, I was going to say by the end of the day, it will be by the end of the day, but I can't, I'll promise before midnight, but it'll be there by tomorrow morning, uh, the, the fo- contact information. John. Wasn't that uh, worship band great, huh? Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. <laughs> really top shelf. I sure was blessed by your stuff today. <laughs> Tuesday nights, Tuesday nights, 7 o'clock, my office. Now, if that scares you when I say my office, it should, until you realize that my office nine years ago, during a boat when I had nothing to do, I turned it into a pool hall and a 50s diner. <laughs> so you should find it relatively relaxing. And uh, the fellowship group has been, uh, uh, or is going to, uh, I think, concentrate on Senior Pastor Dave's sermons. So we get to listen to him on Sunday, and on Tuesdays we get to uh, comment. <laughs> Without me there. Without him there. <laughs> You've told freedom. And I'm not discreet. Um, so feel free, join, join us on, on uh, Tuesday, 7 o'clock. Uh, it's at, uh, I don't expect you to remember it, but it's at 550 Dancy Avenue. It's, uh, you come down some driveway and look for a nondescript oak door, and you'll find me expecting you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, as I said, Elaine and I will be hosting a, a group at the church on starting on Thursday, this Thursday, 7 o'clock, and we'll be following along with the sermons as well. And just so you know, I, I'm writing and posting questions related to the sermon each week. So whether you're part of a group or just even on your own, if you go to the, uh, to the community groups section of our website, there's a, a new PDF there each week with the, with the study questions. There will be some other groups that are going to be starting in a couple of weeks, and we will be getting, letting, introducing those people in the weeks to come. Thank you, and uh, feel free to chat with them. We, uh, we do have some people always available to pray with you following the service. And so Gordon and Nat will be available here on your right-hand side and encourage you to take advantage of that. And otherwise, encourage you to, to visit over coffee and tea, uh, get to know one another, and uh, thank you very much. And may the Lord bless you, and may he continue to write his story in our lives. Amen.